And it was about a man who was forgetful. And the story went like this. That when this man woke up in the morning, he couldn't remember where he had put things the night before. And so one night he had worked out a plan. And he took a pen and a pad. And when he got undressed, he would write down where he put everything when he set it down. So the next morning when he woke up, he took his piece of paper and he would read the list. And he said, my cap is on the dresser. And he went over to the dresser and he found his cap and he put it on. And then he said, then he looked at the paper again and he said, my pants are on the chair. And he went to the chair and there the pants were. And it said, then my shirt is on the table. And he went over to the table. And it went on and on and on until he was fully dressed. At which point he turned around and said, this is fine, but where am I? And he looked and he looked, the story goes, and he couldn't find himself. So when I was a child, I thought this was the funniest story. Now I realize what the real story is about. It's terrifying. And it captures in simple language one of the great fears that occupies Jewish life today. What if you forget? As I've matured, I always thought that this was a story that spoke to many things. But standing here on this morning, I think it speaks to this day of remembering most of all. Over the many years I have seen what memory can do to and for people, as you have. I know about memory's strengths and its weaknesses. I know its successes and its failures. Memory can be a blessing or a burden. It can be a curse or a reward. Sometimes I've seen it be, be all those things all at the same time. But as we age, the power of our memory grows, unlike everything else in our bodies. Maybe it is because there is more for us to remember, but maybe it is because life's death depth is found in what we hold on to. The prominent Jewish historian Yosef Yerushalmi in his book titled Zachor, Remember, tells the true story of two soldiers who survived the Second World War. Both had suffered brain injuries. One of them, Yushami, writes, couldn't remember anything more than the past 20 or 30 minutes. He had no long-term memory. The other soldier would only remember things that had happened before his injury. He had no memory of something that had happened even 30 seconds past. He had no short-term memory. Which is to say that one of them had no past, the other had no present, and Yushami goes on to say, neither of them had a future. I've been a rabbi for half of my life, and I've seen some profound changes over that time. I suspect that for many of you, the pace and rate of what and how things change is of the head-shaking variety. But uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner, the famous author of Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, put it this way at a conversation with him a few years ago. He told me that when he wanted to learn how to do something as a child, he would have to go to his father or grandfather, and he would ask them for advice on how to do it. But the other day he told me, that he needed to transfer something onto a USB thumb drive. You know how the story ends. 
And he had to call his grandson to help him figure it out. Which is to say that there is an entire coda of life that is completely and utterly foreign to those who are being born now from those who have come before them. These people have no memory of a world without remote controls. They don't understand that the reason why we say that you dial someone's number is because there was actually a dial on the phone. There's no memory of a world without Google, Facebook friends, or a cloud of downloaded movies, GPS, or texting. When we part from this world, that reality and the things that made us who we are, for better or for worse, will be gone without a trace. The stuff of that reality is for us to talk about another time. But I speak of it to show you something else. And that something else is that not all memory is eternal. Things are forgotten. Names and dates and times do disappear. To say that we remember is also to know that it may not be remembered. In other words, you might remember, but to be remembered is something entirely different. One is a private enterprise. The other is a collective one. That difference is the idea of where Jewish memory is built. Jews, in fact, are known as a people with long memories, but we weren't born that way. Our great lesson in memory came about 2,000 years ago. It was then that the finishing touches on the Roman conquest of Israel, on the land of Israel, was being completed. But this was not just a loss of land and home, but the Romans mercilessly set about putting to death the teachers and scholars and, tor and torching the academies and the schools of Jewish learning. The existence today of sacred Jewish literature, not the Torah, but the Mishnah, the Talmud, the great rabbinic works that form the foundation of what we understand and know to be Judaism, is because whoever survived those massacres were so frightened that it would be forgotten that they wrote it all down. Before then, it had been forbidden to record it. It was to be taught from teacher to student in a never-ending cycle of human contact and presence. Because the best way to learn something is always to wrap it in a person. Before then, Jewish tradition was a verbal, oral tradition until they sensed perhaps that no one be, would be left to remember it. So they wrote it down. The French Jewish writer, Marcel Prost, his great work was originally titled Remembrance of Things Past by its first translator, Terence Kilmartin. But that wasn't really the title that Prost had chosen in French, not even close. Kilmartin had a love for Shakespeare, and so he used the title of an expression from Shakespeare. The real translation of Proust's great work is In Search of Lost Time. Not Remembrance Alone but the search to make it real. Because when you lose someone you love, as things progress in your life, you wonder, what would they be like now? You wonder, how would they react to me being this or that? When things change in our lives, we wonder, what if they were here to see this? We search for what it means to live with a life that is no longer alive. And the Jewish idea is built on the very same thing. We are in a never-ending search for lost time. It dominates the fabric of Judaism, 
as we move forward in events, yesterday is always tethered to us. Soldiers in Israel are brought to Masada. Visiting dignitaries to Israel are brought to Yad Vashem. School children in Israel hike the country with a Tanakh, a Bible in their hands. The Seder at Passover, the Sukkah on Sukkot, the glass breaking at a wedding, all hurl us backwards as we lurch forwards. What Judaism did was take memory out of the hearts and hands of the individual and made them share it with all of us. So filled with fear that things would be forgotten, the ancient sages made it be that we might forget, but we would not be forgotten. That the strength of our memory would overcome the finite mortal grasp of my life or yours. But I can't help but think, no matter how much or how little is remembered in our time, no matter how many or how few say Kaddish or light candles, or come to a synagogue and say Yizkor, which happened to have been the fear of those rabbis, the fear of forgetting. I can't help but think that there was a part of them that didn't understand something else about the memory that people carry. That memory lives in ways and has a strength in places that none of us quite can understand. Elie Wiesel told the story of a trip that he took to Barcelona when he attended a human rights conference. That week, he said, he went for a walk to see the synagogue of the city, and as he walked out of the shul, he hailed a taxi to get back to the hotel. A taxi stopped, and the driver asked him if he knew how to read the letters on the front of the synagogue, and Wiesel told him yes. He then asked him if he understood what the words meant, and Wiesel told him that he understood Hebrew. The driver then made a quick turn and sped towards the suburbs of Barcelona. He drove faster and faster, and Elie Wiesel became more frightened and yelled at him to slow down, but he drew further away from the city. And finally, the driver pulls up to an old home, and the driver grabs Wiesel by the arms and drags him up the stairs. The man throws open the door to an apartment. He runs into another room and closes that door. He then takes out a key and opens up a locked armoire, and he pulls out a wooden box. And from that box, the driver pulls out an old book that is covered with dust, crumbling from the corners of the pages through time. And he looks into the eyes of Elie Wiesel, Holocaust survivor, scholar, Nobel Prize laureate, and observant Jew. And he says to him, what does this mean? What does it say? And he looks down at the open book and he reads it to himself. And the driver says to him once again, what does it say? And Elie Wiesel tells him that it says that the owner of this book is a hidden Jew and that all of her descendants, the one who finds and holds this book, is a Jew as well. The man took the book, put it back in the box, locked the armoire, left the room, locked the door, went down the stairs, back into the cab and drove Wiesel back to his hotel. And Elie Wiesel finishes the story years later by saying, that he went to Israel one day and he hired a cab. And after a little while, the cab driver says to him, you're an idiot. And Elie Wiesel didn't think much of it. After all, it's an Israeli cab. <laughs> and time passes and the man stops at a light and he says, you're an idiot because I don't believe that you can't remember who I am. And Wiesel says to him, who are you? 
He says, I'm the driver that you met in Spain. And when I heard what you said, I packed my family up, left Spain, and came to live in Israel. When he tells that story, Elie Wiesel, the man who has devoted his life to remembering the, to remembering the memories of six million murdered people, he would say that he never understood what memory really is until he had lived that moment. It could be said that held in the body of our people in ways that I cannot entirely explain, but I suspect that is woven into the fabric of time and space itself, that there is a place where all memory survives, and that every once in a while it bubbles up, it spills over into this world where it is reclaimed and held by us again. It is also to say that there is no such thing as a lost memory, but only memories that are waiting to be found again. It is here that we find Einstein's words to his deceased friend, Michel Besso. Einstein eulogized him by saying that you are not gone, my friend Michel, because in another time, in another dimension, we will see each other once again. On the last day of the March of the Living, I remember that we went to Majdanek, which stands as, as the most intact of all the Nazi death camps. It was the last one that we would visit before heading off to Israel. At the end of the camp's main road is a massive dome. And, and inside of this dome is seven tons of human ash from its original ovens. Pieces of bone are still visible amongst the dust. The two survivors I was with asked me to climb the steps with them to get close to it. It was there that we lit a memorial candle, we whispered a Kaddish, and we held each other's hands. And one of them, Manya, said to me, Rabbi, where do you go from this? And I told her that we now go home to Israel. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes, and she nodded, yes, we'll go to Israel. And I said to her, fear not, Manya, because we will bring them with us too. The Torah uses the word zachor many times to speak about remembering. But in another place, it uses the word pakad, which means to hold. Our mothers and our fathers, our husbands and our wives, brothers and sisters, our tender and beloved sons and daughters, to each of them, they are held by us in our lifetime and by God for eternity because they will be remembered forever. Chag Sameach.